All right, the big question for us to consider today is, are you really worshiping God? Are you? How do you know? Well, it's a good thing God gave us the Bible. He's told us who He is and how He is to be worshipped. Hebrews has, may I remind you, big picture Hebrews, Jesus is the best. Jesus is superior in every way. Right, that's big picture Hebrews, and, and as typically the uh, letters in your New Testament do, after it goes through the awesome doctrine, it gets to okay, how do I apply this to my life? And so now that you know who Jesus is and how awesome He really is, He is worthy of worship, and we need to remember uh, not just who Jesus is, but how He is to be worshipped. It's important we remember this. So go ahead. <laughs> In fact, you, you, you need to remember this because it can be deadly if you don't. I've been studying Leviticus, and there's a story in Leviticus of two guys who are who are the high priest's sons, Nadab and Abihu. They offered God unauthorized fire, or some of your Bibles might call it strange fire, and because of that they died. God killed them. God takes worship of Himself very seriously. And we need to take it seriously too. So, let's let's look at this passage together. We've already looked at the first part of Hebrews 13. It's kind of continuing this theme of worshiping God. And there's some things we need to remember as we worship God. Look at verse 7. Hebrews 13, verse 7 says, Remember your leaders... Those who spoke to you the word of God, consider the outcome of their way of life and imitate their faith. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Do not be led away by diverse and strange teachings, for it is good for the heart to be strengthened by grace, not by foods which have not benefited those devoted to them. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals, whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest, as a sacrifice for sin, are burnt outside the camp. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured, for here... We have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. Through Him, then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is, the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for such sacrifices are pleasing to God. May I remind you, the proposition of this text is is carrying on from chapter 12, verse 28. In verse 28, we're told to to let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken, and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe. Why? Because you have a God who is a consuming fire. Take Him seriously. So the proposition is that God wants you to offer Him acceptable worship worship 
And so as you've come into the application or duty passage of the book, it's telling us, well, how do I apply all this awesome doctrine about Jesus? What do I do with this Jesus? Well, you worship him. Worship him. How do I do that? There, there is an acceptable and unacceptable way to worship God. And so today we're going to see seven reminders that will enable you to worship Him in an acceptable way. Number one, remember your leaders. In the Greek, it's a present active imperative. In other words, it's a command imperative. You, you don't have an option. You must do this. It's present tense means you keep doing it your whole life, all the time. Keep remembering your leaders. So Hebrews is telling you to think back to the people who taught you the Word of God. For the Hebrews, uh, I don't know, I'm not sure who comes to their mind, but maybe people like the Apostle Paul or the Apostle Peter or the Apostle John, just to name, and it doesn't have to be an apostle, but... Those might be some of the people that uh, that the Holy Spirit's thinking about here. But perhaps for you, it might be a parent. It might be uh, a teacher. Uh, or maybe just some Christian who became a friend of yours who knew the Bible. You're, you are to search the examples of, of leaders within the universal church, and especially amongst those particular preachers of the Word of God. What do you do? Well, note what we are to learn from them. Uh, not their personalities. That's not, you know, don't, don't, don't analyze them in that way. It's not their ministry techniques and, and, you know, how did they do this this way? But the Bible tells you right there, verse 7, it's, how do you remember your leaders? You remember the outcome of their way of life. And the text seems to be pointing, by the way, to both their lives as well as their deaths. It's implied that these people are, are no longer around. They're dead. So think about someone like the Apostle Paul, for example. They're, they're exhorted, remember the Apostle Paul and the outcome of his way of life. Yes, he died. The emperor of Rome killed him. Removed his head from his body. So that, that was the outcome of his way of life as a follower of Jesus Christ. But Paul, that didn't concern him. He knew that his body was just a temporary tent and life was momentary suffering leading to something that was eternal. But there's lessons to be learned here. And, and note, note second of all here, what, what else are you to remember? What, what are you to do with this? Well, the text says, imitate their faith. Imitate their faith. You're, you are to imitate leaders. By the way, you don't imitate their worldly methods. You, you're not to imitate their sins. Don't imitate the, their fancies. But the text says you imitate their faith. You study and reflect upon the times in their lives when they actually relied upon God and they boldly stood with and for Jesus Christ. Observe that it was faith that gave their ministries the power. It was faith that sustained them to the end. It was faith that caused them to endure to the end. 
And so it's through their example, their the resolve to trust the Lord, to stand firm upon His Word, to rely completely on His matchless grace, and, and especially when others are giving way and giving in and compromising, you, you imitate the faith. It's, it's the greatest legacy, by the way, that any of us can impart to somebody else. It's the pattern that needs to be passed on. Godly leaders are a blessing to us, but they don't live forever. They don't live forever. And some people look at verse 8 and think, wow, that doesn't seem to fit the context. (laughs) Thankfully, as you look at verse 8, there is someone who does live forever. So, my friends, yes, remember your leaders. Study Christian biographies. Study your Bibles, like Hebrews 11. You have great leaders you need to remember. But verse 8 tells us, more importantly, remember your Savior. You need to remember your Savior. Now, sadly, the former leaders have died, but who is Jesus? He's the one who remains the same. And that's good news, my friends. The the constancy of Jesus enables us to follow the, the, the faith of our leaders. The lives of former leaders should be pointing us to Jesus, and if they're not, then you don't imitate that, of course. But what a blessing to have an unchanging Savior. Now take note that this Savior is changeless through all time periods. Did you notice it's Jesus who is the same yesterday, today, and forever? All three time periods. So Christ's work of yesterday is is good news. Because it applies for you today, and it's going to keep applying for you into the future. Because who is He, and what has He done? Well, Christ's work of yesterday was he came and he suffered for your sin on the cross. His work of today is, is, where is he? The Bible, Hebrews has told us he's at the throne of God. He is ministering on your behalf as your high priest. He is praying for you. He intercedes for you. And in the future, he's going to return and he will rule as king from Jerusalem. And he will conclude God's purposes. So therefore, Jesus never needs to be replaced. He doesn't have a use-by date. <laughs> right? Uh, his work need no- needs nothing added to it because it's totally perfect. And so no matter what lies ahead of us, we must sustain ourselves with this Savior who is unchanging and is certain. Now there's three vital implications that that flow out of that verse. Incredible. Think about this. Number one, since you have an unchanging Savior, His ministry and call are the same as they ever were. So that means when you read Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, the Gospels, you, you see there in the Gospels someone who did amazing things, cleansing lepers, raising the dead, uh, stilling storms, feeding hungry, preaching the word, speaking words of forgiveness to sinners. That is your Lord. That is the Son of God. Here is someone who is mighty to save, who came in in our own form some 2,000 years ago. And it's similarly the demands that 
he placed on his first disciples are still valid today, by the way. It's the same because you have the same Savior, right? What did Jesus say? That if anybody would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. Still valid. And that call to the cross, by the way, is still the same today. It hasn't changed. And so that also means his blessings haven't changed either. What good news. That you can still come to Jesus, he says, and all who labor and are heavy laden, he says, I will give you rest. It's good news. Second implication from verse 8 is that the Christian life is ever the same then. So if Je- since Jesus is the same, then the Christian life is ever the same, and it's unchanging through all generations. And so the stories and teachings in the Bible are not irrelevant to the modern or, shall I say, postmodern man. And so in the face of the world's complaint that ours is some outdated thing, it's an outdated creed and doctrines, here's what Jesus says, I am the same. Jesus says, I am the same. So this is why you need to study church history. You need to read Christian biographies because other lives of faith are are examples to us. I like what A.W. Tozer said. He said this, One of the most popular current errors and the one out of which springs most of the noisy, blustering religious activity in evangelical circles is the notion that that as times change, the church must change with them. Well, that means Jesus changes. And we, we see he doesn't. And so in contrast to man's wisdom that the church needs to change, I like what the prophet Jeremiah says. The prophet Jeremiah said, Stand at the crossroads and look. Ask for the ancient paths. Ask where the good way is. And walk in it, and you will find rest for your souls good advice. There's a third implication from verse 8. Because Jesus Christ is the same today as he ever was, it is Jesus, my friends, who we represent. It's Jesus who we display before this world in our own generation. So it's not a tradition. It's not a philosophy of man that we are serving. But Jesus, the Savior, the sin. The Savior of sinners, your Savior, hopefully. The Son of God who who bears His love to our world, who calls men and women through us to this living hope. And He's been doing this every century, continues to do it. So in order to do this, my friends, you need to remember something else. Number Verse 9 says you need to remember your teaching. Don't forget the teachings. And say, well, why do I need to remember the teaching? Well, because verse 9 says, you can be led away by false teachings. You can. And you say, well, what are these false teachings? Well, verse 9 gives a very helpful description of false teaching here with two simple words which have huge meaning. Let me explain. Number one, we see in verse 9, it tells us to watch out for diverse teachings. Watch out for diverse teachings. That word diverse is an interesting word. That word is is actually used of clothing 
woven together with many colors. And the Greek translation of the Old Testament actually used this for the coat of many colors that Jacob gave to his favorite son, Joseph. Remember that famous coat of many colors? That's this word diverse. This is what false teaching is like. It's dazzling to behold. It's, it's the place of plain truth, but it represents something that's enticing from many different viewpoints. I, this word is used in metalworking when somebody is trying to make an alloy. You, you know what an alloy is, right? An alloy is not a pure one type of metal. An alloy is where you take two or more kinds of metal and you put them together and you get something else. So things like brass, for example, is actually a combination of at least two metals together. That's what diverse teaching is like. It's like an alloy. So the false teaching, what is it doing? It's, It's mixing what is heavenly with the worldly. Divine revelation with human reason. It's blending them together instead of preserving the pure substance. So things described by this word are therefore complex as opposed to clear. It's something that's intricate as to what is should be plain. And so God says, watch out for this diverse teaching. The, the, the mixing of the heavenly and the worldly together. It's what Satan has done since the Garden of Eden in Genesis 3. But number two, you're also to watch out for strange teaching. This was the word that the Greeks used for those who were citizens of another nation, for the, the foreigners, or even for mercenary soldiers. The word was also used of things not previously known, things unheard of, or what is unfamiliar. So here's the point, my friends, that false teaching is something that's alien and foreign. It's not native to the Bible or God's Word. And so here you are actually being warned against things that are novel in theology anyway. There is no new theology. If you hear someone talking about new theology, watch out. Uh, You know, we have 2,000 years of church history. There shouldn't be anything new. You're warned against the novel here. Now, both of these terms, diverse as well as the strange, are aptly describing much, sadly, much of what is entering into the minds of Christians today. Uh, Christians are are getting it from all sorts of places. They're getting it from sermons. It's on the radio. It's you go to the Christian bookstore, right? They're getting the diverse and the strange. It's on YouTube. It's on the internet. It's everywhere. And so, just as in our, our worldly society is, is so also in our worldly church, the new seems by so many people to be thought as something better. We have new perspectives, new paradigms, new models for Christian living. We have new prayers. We have new promises, new blessings. The list goes on and on and on and on and on. And so, and we're just assaulted by the new. And given such a savage assault, even from within the, within the church, by the way, which is exactly what uh, a lot of evangelicalism is experiencing today, it's no wonder 
we're losing our spiritual power for true godliness. We've denied the godliness, as Paul mentions to Timothy. And so the question then arises, well, how do you tell the difference? I know you, you wanted to know that, didn't you? How do you tell the difference? How do you know if something is diverse or strange? How do you tell the difference? How do you judge biblical doctrine? Do you judge by if a teacher is sincere? No. Uh, How about the basis of their personality? No. Uh, Is it popular? No, that's not that's not the uh, what if everybody's buying that book? No, that's a bad way. A lot of people shop that way though, right? They 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 want to look for the, the popular. What is everybody else listening to and reading and so forth? But what our passage says about false teaching here is interesting. It's telling us how we should discern matters of truth. Beware of teaching that mixes God's Word with the Word of man. Beware of doctrines that are new. I mean, if you study church history and all of a sudden somebody's talking about something you've never heard in church history for 2,000 years, warning flags should be going up. The charge of novelty, by the way, was leveled against the Reformers. This, this is nothing new. Uh, the Protestant Reformers were, were told, uh, oh, you're just coming up with something new. I mean, we have all this church history for, you know, 1,500 years. The Reformers took that charge very seriously, by the way, and, and acknowledged that if that was true, it would actually condemn their teaching. They, they agreed if that was true. They were eager to show, and, and I think they did very effectively, by the way, that theirs was not something new. In fact, the Reformers were exhorting us to go back to Scripture, Scripture alone, not church traditions. Go back to the Scripture, what was old and original. So the truths of the Reformation were actually found going back to the Apostles' doctrine and, and looking at the prophets. What did they say? So ultimately, this is our only sure guide when it comes to matters of truth. So the question is, does it actually agree with the clear teachings of Scripture? So remember your teaching. And then number four, remember your covenant. Remember your covenant. Now remember who this book is written to. It's written to Hebrews. Right? Their religion is Judaism, or what you might call a Jew. These are people who are children of Abraham. Okay? And so in verses 10 through 13, it's using the symbolism that the, the readers would have understood. And it's contrasting the privileges of those Jews who were believers with the, the ones who were unbelievers. And it's saying, well, which system is superior? Christianity or Judaism? The Old Covenant? Or the new covenant? Which one do you think is better? The old or the new? Well, by now, if you've read through the entire book of Hebrews, you know, well, the new covenant is far superior. And so what do we see here? Well, number one, in the new covenant, Christ provides the superior altar. Altar was important to to the Jews. And the Jews who had become Christians now had access to a special altar. 
What is that? Well, that's Christ's atoning death. The new altar is Christ's atoning death. You'll see a picture of, of the high priest in, the, in that very special room, which is called the Holy of Holies. In there was an altar, the mercy seat, the, the special little box, the Ark of the Covenant. And so believing Hebrews had eternal access to all of the spiritual blessings that Jesus could provide for them. They weren't missing out on anything that was of any importance. But on the other hand, the unbelieving Jews minister at that altar in the Jewish temple. And so as a result, these Jews had no access to the benefits that Christ made available to them. Unbelieving Jews, oh yeah, they may have eaten the food that was there at the Jewish altar, but they didn't enjoy the spiritual food that was being offered them in Christ. And so this warning here was urging these Hebrew readers, hey, don't turn away from Christ. Don't, don't, don't look back to, to this religion of Judaism and think, ooh, yeah, well, that looks appealing. Because if you do that, then you're going to lose access to Jesus. Because the new covenant, Christ is providing this superior altar. And, and the cool thing about that is we, we can come to Jesus anytime. It's not just one time a year that a high priest got to go in on the day of atonement. And then number two, in the new covenant, Christ not only is, not only is he supplying the superior altar, he's supplying the superior sacrifice. In fact, he is the sacrifice as verse 11 reminds us. Notice verse 11. It's, it's for the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy places by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. So verse 11 is there's It's focusing on that offering of the, the blood of animals to God and the burning of those bodies of animals. And that was to be done outside the camp. What is that all about? Well, my friends, here's where you need to read the book of Leviticus to to understand what this is talking about. Because in the book of Leviticus, God actually told Israel to celebrate a very special day. Read Leviticus 16. It was called the Day of Atonement. And on that day, one day out of every year, the Jewish high priest would bring sin offerings to God, and he wasn't allowed to eat those sacrifices. Instead, those sacrifices had to be burnt. And they couldn't be burnt anywhere in the camp or in the city of Jerusalem. They had to be taken outside. You say, why? Why did God do that? Well, because it would make the entire camp unclean. And God cares about his people being clean. That's how you enter into His presence. You have to be clean. And so Christians have, have spiritual access to the great sin offering that Jesus presented. That's the glorious truth here because Jesus is the superior sacrifice. This offering is food for the soul. And number three, in the New Covenant, Christ provides the superior result. Wow, so he's the superior altar, the superior sacrifice, and you get a superior result. Well, why would I 
why would I want anything else? Because <laughs> verses 12 through 13 there are building on the knowledge that Jesus is the one who died outside the walls of Jerusalem. He was outside that, that northwest gate of Jerusalem. So what did his death actually accomplish? What was the result? Well, verse 12 tells you that Jesus actually made his people holy. All the blood of the bulls and the goats didn't accomplish that. It was only a covering. It was just a covering. And then they had to do it all again over and over and over and over. But with the blood of Jesus, no. Total forgiveness. So Christ's death outside Jerusalem represented his rejection here by that religious system. And so his people are made holy. They are sanctified. That's what sanctified means. You're set apart. And so that's why it's important, friends. You recognize who Jesus is, what he's accomplished, that you come to verse 13 and you need to remember your calling. Because if you believe that and you live that out, you need to remember verse 13, which says this, Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. And so the book of Hebrews here is urging true believers, go outside the camp of Judaism. Don't stay within that false system. Reject it. It was only a temporary thing that God set up at Mount Sinai, right? And so you're, you're to reject the fellowship and the rituals of Judaism and cling only to Judaism. And some of you might be thinking, well, I'm not a Jew, so what does this have to do with me? Well, may I remind you, John Calvin said, every one of you is an idol factory. Every one of you is an idol factory, and you want to produce idols. Right? You want something to worship. Because God made you to worship. Who are you worshiping? That's the question. So just, just bear that in mind. Cling to Jesus, nothing else. So, and, and by the way, if you do this, look at the results. See, if you cling to Jesus, you look to Jesus, you come to Jesus, it doesn't mean your life is going to be better, necessarily, at least in this life, Right? The prosperity gospel tells you, come to Jesus so you can have prosperity and wealth and good health and, you know, your whole life's going to be better. You can have your best life now. But that's not what this is saying. See, in the process of coming to Jesus, you're actually surrendering your security and you're actually accepting danger. But that is the call here. We must follow Christ without fearing the ridicule from the unbelievers. It's coming, my friends. It's coming. If you haven't had it yet, it's coming. I fear it's going to come fast and quick. And Christians, even in New Zealand, will be thrown in jail. Some might die. You need to be ready. You need to be ready. You say, well, well how can I do that? How can I follow Christ without fearing well, verse 14 tells us why Christians can suffer for the sake of Christ. Here's number six, friends, that you need to remember your reward. There's a reward coming for those who suffer the reproach of Christ. See, commitment to Christ brings an eternal home 
with the eternal Christ. See, the good news is you get Christ with this home. We, we have an everlasting city that is designed by God. And your hope should not be in the fading city of man, because that's, that's really discouraging, isn't it? I mean, think about it, my friends. You're to live for the future, not for the present. And no matter how appealing your life in New Zealand is, my friend, you actually have a better country to come. Now that's somebody's artwork of the New Jerusalem on the screen there. I'm just reminding you, that's where your real citizenship lies. That's your true home if you're a Christian. So no matter how appealing your life is, there is a better life to come. This is not your best life now. And so your citizenship, yes, what a nice thing it is. What a blessing. But your heavenly citizenship is far superior. And the Bible tells us that the city of Hamilton can't compare to the new Jerusalem. And I'm not just talking about size. Right? This is truly awesome. Hamilton might be winning awards in New Zealand, but it doesn't compare. My friends, there is one more way to offer acceptable worship to God. Verses 15 and 16 tell us to remember your sacrifices. Remember your sacrifices. Now, for a Hebrew, sacrifice was something really important. God had told them to do this. He had many different kinds of sacrifices. So it was extremely important to a Jew. It was God's provision for cleansing of the sin under that old covenant. And so many Christian Jews uh, were, were no doubt maybe wondering, did, did God require any kind of sacrifice under the new covenant? Or do we just do away with all of those sacrifices? Can, can, you, can you understand when sacrifice was such an important part of their life, why they might wonder this? Is there anything I need to do now? I mean, that's no wonder. I, I think that would be a normal way for them to think. They, they, they knew Christ offered the one and only sacrifice for sin, but they were used to all kinds of sacrifices, and, and perhaps maybe God still demanded some offering on their part, or maybe there needed to be some sacrifice, or even this needed to be done for those who became Christians. And the answer is yes. In a way, God does still demand this. He demands sacrifice. But in what way does God demand sacrifice? Is God telling you to go slit the throat of a lamb? Or to burn a bull? Is that what God wants you to do? Well, you're to remember the sacrifices, because verses 15 and 16 tell us to do so. (laughs) Look what it says, that through Him then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. Hmm, that's interesting. Now there's some points that need to be made even from this one verse. May I remind you, according to verse 15, that Christ is the the mediator of all of your worship. Because notice how verse 15 starts. It's through Christ. Through Christ. Christ, He is your go-between. He is your mediator. And so our sacrifice of praise to God must go through Jesus. He is your go-between. You say, why? Because we're all sinners. 
and God is infinitely holy and pure, and God cannot, cannot allow sin into His presence. And so if you were to draw near to God without Christ, what do you think would happen to you? You're gone. Your presence is gone. You can't do that. <laughs> That's not allowed. So you need to think of Christ as your asbestos. Right? You, you, I know we've banned that stuff, but you, you know what that's supposed to do, right? It's supposed to keep you from, and whatever it's around, to keep from getting burnt up. So think of Christ as, as your asbestos righteousness, and, and you're wrapped up in, in that, and, and it's protecting you in His love, so then you can enjoy the blazing glory of God. Without Christ, you're dead. So every act of worship, every word of praise coming out of your mouth is to go to God through Christ. And if that doesn't happen, then you're not, it's not getting to Him. Okay, so never cease to think of Christ as your mediator in worship because it, verse 15 says it's through Him. So God is not pleased with our animal sacrifices anymore because Jesus was the Lamb of God who bore the sin of the world. However, though, our lips are to echo what we believe in our hearts. (laughs) Did you notice what verse 15 says? Let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. What, What is that? That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge His name. So question, friends. Do you really believe that God is always great and always good? Do you? If you really believe that God is always great and always good, then you are going to speak that truth. See, number two here is that lips, our lips, should continually praise God. Keyword, continually. Continually. Don't stop. Keep doing it. And there's at least three senses, by the way, you, you need to think of this word continually. Because um, some people think, well... This is something I only do on Christmas Day. Or Thanksgiving, of course, you give thanks to God on Thanksgiving. Or I do it on Sunday when, you know, it's time to offer praise. Don't just praise Him on those days. By all means, do it on those days. But praise Him continually. Let every day be a holy day to God. So for the pilgrim, the holy day in the holy place is something that's always present because God's everywhere. Uh, Another way to think about this word continually is that every word that comes out of our mouths needs to be rooted in who God is. This praiseworthiness of God's grace and His justice and His wisdom and His power and so forth. And so every word. So that means even if it's a, a conversation that you have with a friend today or uh, you, you're, you're having a phone call with somebody, or you're teaching math to somebody, or you're at a ball game and you're shouting. And Does that still happen? Are we still allowed to do that? Right, it, you get the point. It doesn't matter where you are, what you're doing. You're to honor God in that conversation, in those words. What, what your lips are saying is to honor God. God is hearing those praises that should be going to Him. 
But perhaps the most important thing to say about that word continually is that it means praise God continually through the good times and the bad times. So not just all the time, but even during the bad times. So wherever our journey takes us, and sometimes it's through trials, See, life does not consist of praise God times and then you criticize God at other times. There, there's only a praise God time. Only a praise God time. That, that doesn't mean you're not going to cry. It doesn't mean there, there's no tears to be shed. Okay? And, and it doesn't mean that there's no perplexities about the way God works. Even a blameless man named Job asked God why. That's normal. But it does mean that through our tears, through the unanswered questions of life, we praise God. We speak well of Him. We we don't call Him into question. We submit. We submit to Him as the one who is wise, all-powerful, and good. But there's a third thing to think about here. It's in verse 16, that your treasure is in heaven and is worth more than anything here on earth. Because verse 16 says, Do not neglect to do good and to share what you have, for those kinds of sacrifices are pleasing to God. So, my friends, verse 16 is actually evidence of where your treasure is. How did Jesus put it in Matthew 6? Where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Right? And that's why he says, watch out, because you can't serve God and money. And if your treasure's in the money, what that does for you, watch out, you're not worshiping God, because the money and how you use your money shows where your heart is. That's, that's what Jesus taught. And so, is your treasure in heaven? And so here the sacrifices of worship are what? They're doing good for other people and sharing what the resources that God gives to you. And so the reason that this is worship, my friends, is that the way that you handle your possessions on earth is actually declaring what you believe about God. It's declaring where your treasure is, whether your treasure is on earth or whether your treasure is in heaven. Is God your treasure? See, if you're somebody who is generous... In, in, in your giving to needy people and giving for the cause of Christ, it shows that your treasure is God. Hopefully that's true. Are you keeping your life lean? Are you holding money loosely? If you are, that's good. Because if you do that, it's actually showing that this life is not all there is. You're living for another world. But there's a last point that needs to be made here. My friends, notice this, that worship pleases God. Present imperative in the Greek, you're to continually do this. And it is a command to to do this here in verse 16. Sacrifices are pleasing to God. So don't neglect it. Why does it please God? Well, Why does it please God when you do good and you're sharing what you have because of why? Hopefully you're you're seeking the city and not the city of man. 
And the answer should be obvious, that when you give things away, when you live in, in a radical way, at least in the world's eyes, you're actually making God look more valuable than those things. You make God look more important than things. And when you're thrown in jail, and you can still rejoice, what does that show? And you lose your property, and you can rejoice? And you lose your health, and you can still rejoice? What does that show? That's one of the best testimonies that you can give to an unbeliever because it shows what is your treasure. Hopefully it's God. So I ask my friends, how are you doing? How are you doing? It's convicting, I know. I know. Hopefully you have the right foundation that Jesus is the best. Hebrews has been telling us that. Hopefully you understand that Jesus is superior. And if you really believe that, then you're going to live like that And you're going to be offering acceptable worship to God. So, again, the question is, friends, are you really worshiping God? I hope you are. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for the book of Hebrews. Thank you for exhorting us to remember these important things. Thank you for making it possible for us to know you and to be able to worship you May we really find you to be worthy of worship. May we find you to be our great treasure. Forgive us when our hearts make idols and we, we worship those. Uh, would you point those out for us, please? Enable us to know what they are and to live accordingly. To know Jesus, to, to have an intimate fellowship with Him so that the things of this earth lose their value. And we're able to hold on to the things of this earth lightly and and, and, and our affections not drawn too much to them so that we can suffer joyfully. May we live for eternity. May our affections be set on things above. Would you draw our hearts to you Uh, May we be stayed on Christ and find the endurance uh, through Him that we need to live through this life. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.